Natalie Bensavanga. And I'm Tony Norman. And this is In Other News, the podcast that is not afraid to go there. Where? Anywhere the story takes us. You concerned about speaking your mind? Me? Yeah, right. You? Ha! <laughs> Let's go, Nat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of In Other News. I am your co-host, Natalie Bensavanga, with my awesome, awesome co-host, <laughs> Tony Norman. How are you today, Tony? Great. Episode nine. Can We're... you believe that? Oh, man, I tell you. It's my lucky number. Oh, is it? Well, every number is my lucky number. <laughs> But, you, you know, we they, we, got, we got nine of these under our belt. I know. All right. I'm so proud of us. But there is <laughs> so much to talk about, as always. So let's dive right into hot takes. All right. All right. So, you know, what's really been interesting about doing another news together is we've really been able to take a look at the way media functions and be critical with our own lens as journalists and as consumers of media around this very topic. And so we found this really great article from the Keystone Newsroom on media literacy. And recently, uh, Senator Katie Muth, a Democrat from Berks County, introduced Senate Bill 496, which would require schools to provide a class for students in grades K through 12 that focus on critical thinking skills and knowledge necessary to evaluate the accuracy of news stories. What do you think of that as a bill? Well, it sounds like a great thing, but you know, I I I feel that discernment is something that should have been a part of the curriculum already. You know, how to discern truth from fiction. But I think when it comes to the press and when it comes to media, there really does need to be this this larger intention mm. to to show through examples. You know what a lie is, how it can propagate you know, in this ecosystem mm -hmm. and, and, and how to respond to it. So I think that's a very, very good deal. We'll, we'll give students a, a leg up because media literacy really is uh, the name of the game. It really is. And, you know, now that everybody's basically getting their news on social media yes. <laughs> and you're just sort of swiping as we scroll, <laughs> um, it's really easy to become quickly misinformed just by reading clickbait headlines. But, you know, a lot of these news outlets have been very intentional in misleading us. Right. And not right. just now, but for decades. And I remember, you know, we when we're going all the way back to uh, George W. and the start of Fox News in the late 90s and Al Gore and the Hanging Chads and mm -hmm. CNN and the 24-hour news cycle and mm -hmm. creating this arena of mm -hmm. entertainment as it relates to media, do you think that did a disservice to us now, like in retrospect? It undermined our very democracy mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. we stumbled into um, Afghanistan and we mm -hmm. stumbled uh, into Iraq mm -hmm. um, in terms of the cost of, of uh, human lives and treasure, um, both to Americans and to the civilians of those countries, uh, it's, it's uh, incalculable. Mm. And, uh, and, it, and in both cases, I would say, especially in Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, the, the missions, um, the, the very logic of going into those countries were uh, precipitated by lies. Oof. You know what? That is so powerful when you say it just so directly because now the New York Times, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you saw this article recently, but they were saying, Why'd we even go into yeah, Iraq? Yeah, that so, was wild. Why'd we do that? And who were the warmongers? What's happening? And, it's, <laughs> it, and it was interesting because obviously, if you look back twenty years ago, the New York Times was very instrumental 
in in all of these uh, pieces of the puzzle that have led us to this moment, do you think it's incredibly hypocritical of them to oh, be talking out of both sides like this? Absolutely. I mean, they were defending Judith Miller, who was their primary oh. um, reporter um, on the uh, Iraq um, story, the invasion, and you know, justifying—I mean, literally mm. justifying the actions of the United States. You know, in, in every article. Uh, I mean, and let me tell you, it was not a popular position. Well, you were critical. very much oh, like, I, personally as attacked. A, yes, as a, I, I was called Taliban Tony, uh, <laughs> you know, by uh, by readers, and I can tell you that a lot of my colleagues at the Post Gazette at the time, mm -hmm. you know, on the editorial board, and um, even fellow columnists um, were saying, you know, hey Tony, you know, this this does not feel right. I mean, this war is good. You know, and you're on the outside, and uh, and I just felt, nope, I'm just going to stick to my guns. And I remember one night, you know, just sort of uh, covering the uh, march on uh, in Oakland uh, mm. on Fifth Avenue. It was snowing, and it was with the Thomas Merton Center, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other protesters and wow. dissenters uh, walking through the snow, and and. Um, I'm quoting people in my for my column in which they were saying, no to war, no to war, no to war. And then at one point, they all stopped at an intersection of Fifth Avenue, and it fell down on, on in, in the middle of the street and just made snow angels. And uh, and I joined them, and I joined wow. them. And when I went into work the next day, and I, I, I admitted that I had done this and that I, quote, given up my objectivity, boy, the reception was brutal. That's and, amazing. And, and I just thought, you know what? At a certain point, your humanity has to mm -hmm. um, say something to your uh, responsibilities as a journalist. That's incredible, Tony. Thanks so much for sharing that anecdote. I, I think of your, your trajectory and it's like, Look where you started, and now look where you are. And, <laughs> and, and we have things that we're even working on together outside yes. of the podcast. We're going to be moderating a debate slash town hall event on April 18th uh, with Public Source with Next Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And uh, Charlie Wolfson from Public Source is going to be joining us. And That's it's right. for the county executive race, which has been wild. If you guys aren't following it, it's very dramatic. People are dropping in, dropping out left and right. We're going to be down to the wire looking at our notes. But why is this race so important now that Rich Fitzgerald is no longer able to run? What makes this so necessary for people to pay attention to? Well, first of all, people probably don't realize that the county executive office is really, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, is the third most important office in the state. It's, it, it follows the governor, which is number one, the mayor of Philadelphia, which is number two, and the county executive of wow. Pitts, you know of Allegheny County is number three, uh, just in terms of influence. Mm -hmm. And you know this is um, this seat is opening up for the first time uh, in many many years, uh, nearly a decade, if I if yeah. I have that uh, uh, cor correct. And so there's a there's a lot of scrambling for it. Um, and here in Allegheny County. Uh, in Pittsburgh, in particular, uh, there are various factions. You mm -hmm. know, a, re a reform faction and the old Democratic uh, machine mm -hmm. that are vying for ultimate uh, supremacy here. And so, it's fascinating on just on a soap operish level. Yes, uh, who's gonna get that jump ball? 
And uh, and there's so many interesting characters. So I, <laughs> we're going to have fun. We're going to have quizzing, a lot of fun. Quizzing them, you know. Absolutely. So. And if people want to be a part of it, they can come watch it live. It's going to be at the Point Park uh, Center for Media Innovation downtown. Um, they can. We're also going to be streaming it online. Yep. And of course, you know, we're going to be taking questions from the audience live and, and streaming. But if you have questions ahead of time, you know, Tony and I are going to be doing our homework with Charlie over the next few weeks. So we welcome um, the perspectives and the thoughts of our community members. So please shoot us an email and and let us know. We'll, we'll put our email in the in the links with our action items. But, you know, I would be remiss to if we didn't give a few updates on what's been going on at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm. Um, you know, the, the transphobic speakers are still set to be here soon. And the debate around... Um, the experience of being transgender is still going to happen. And of course, in response, uh, the University of Pittsburgh students are bravely going to be protesting mm -hmm. in multiple uh, ways over multiple days in the coming days. So be sure to stay with us. We're going to be chatting with Ciora Thomas during the drill down. She is the founder and executive director of Sisters PGH. And we're going to be talking to her about her organization, her work, and what she thinks of what's happening at the University of Pittsburgh. So stay tuned. You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for joining us. Well, we are back with the drill down and we are so honored to have our guest for this week, Ciora Thomas. She is the founder and executive director of Sisters PGH. It is so good to see you. How are you, Ciora? It's good to see you too. Um, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, despite, you know, the turmoil of things going on in the world. I'm doing fairly well. That is good to hear. Before we launch into said turmoil, I think it's important that everyone knows a little bit more about you and your work with Sisters PGH. So could you share a little bit about your story? Yeah. Um, so I'm a Pittsburgh native. I was born in Homewood. I grew mm -hmm. up in Homewood. I'm more of a East Side girl. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, other than that, it's kind of foreign town to me in Pittsburgh. But um, I was uh, pushed out of the home as a young person when I started oh. to transition. Mm -hmm. And uh, that pushed me to be downtown. Um, back in the day, Liberty Avenue, that was a place for uh, trans people, specifically Black trans women to be. And if you were there in those times, I'm sure Friday, Saturday nights, you saw groups of mm -hmm. trans women on Liberty Avenue. You're talking um, about the 1980 Sierra? Yeah, and above. Uh, before the gentrification started to happen downtown. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and because that was essentially our spot uh, where we worked um, as sex workers, and as well as uh, I and a couple of my sisters, we slept in Point State Park. Oh. Um, so that's where we would sleep as, at night as young people or the subway station, the tea station. Um, so we would be in these different areas, uh, homeless. And um, I remember uh, one night I was just tired. I was tired of living like this. I've experienced all the nonprofits, the the queer nonprofits that were, you know, here to say they were here to support us. Um, but there was nothing tangible actually happening to shift my marginalization um, as a marginalized uh, trans black person in Pittsburgh. Mm. So um, I figured, why not do it myself? And I did. Mm. And uh, what year are we talking? When? Did, when? What year was this? Sierra? Oh my gosh! I started. I started Sisters officially uh, around 2010. Okay. Um, 
And but prior to that, um, things were in the making around 2005, and I'm 34, so I was okay. like still a very young young person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, navigating these different places um, and navigating how to run a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and uh, not only that, but not. Uh, run a nonprofit under this nonprofit industrial complex that seems to navigate through Pittsburgh a lot. We have like the most nonprofits in what the the country, the the world, um, right here in Pittsburgh in Allegheny County. So, um, which says a lot to service provision for marginalized people. But um, here we are now. Mm. So, so when we're when you're talking to that space of sort of these, the industrialized complex of mm-hmm. philanthropy in Pittsburgh, what, what were you seeing that were the problems, the barriers to receiving care and support? Hmm. Yeah. So there were, a, and this is a lot of what I didn't know then. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do know now is that there were just a lot of savior complexes going on. There were a lot of, funding that were not being directed to marginalized communities and because we were not in a space to lead. Mm-hmm. We were homeless. We were uh, uh, addicted to drugs. We were, um, you know, just disenfranchised completely. So there was no time for any of us to stop and say, oh, let's lead something. Let's pull ourselves up, um, you know, out of these situations. And, um, but once I started to get into the field of nonprofit work, I just noticed there were a lot of white queer gatekeepers uh, within our community um, that were gatekeeping funding that uh, were not um, interested (laughs) in sharing those funding opportunities. And because I am the demographic um, that needs the funding. Mm. Um, And when you put the money in the hands of those who need the money that takes away from the resource from that savior complex that I spoke of earlier. So, so was the opposition to you, uh, was it, was it subtle or was it blatant and, and it was it basically racial and class, um, snobbery at that point? Oh, absolutely. Um, as I began navigating, um, the nonprofit world and being able to have access to these funders that also fund larger uh, LGBTQ centers or spaces. And I was able to actually explain to them what's actually going on, how my girls are not getting served and not just Mm -hmm. my girls, my trans community is not getting served. And that started to shift things. And um, it turned into a lot, like I deal with so much stuff behind the scenes, like with different Orgs, um, you know the racism, the white supremacy that we are we experience in Pittsburgh, and you know attempts to derail my work, um, turn my community against me. Um, you know, there's all these things that are happening. I've not been swayed. Like I'm a strong girl, but um, but all these things are still happening. And um, I've traveled around the country and I've seen what Black trans leadership looks like. There, like there are hundreds of Black trans-led organizations around the country mm-hmm. that are being led by a predominance of Black trans women. Mm-hmm. And I knew in Pittsburgh, I was going to have a challenge because Pittsburgh has never seen Black trans leadership at this capacity um, by a Black trans woman before. Um, so... You know, here I am. Well, here you are. And we're so glad that you're here. And, um, you know, I've admired you and your work 
for many years, but listening to you talk about what's going on around the country and visiting spaces around the country, is it alarming to you or not surprising to you at the level of conversation around uh, the erasure of trans Mm. and gender expansive people through actual policy and putting laws on the books? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's happening everywhere. That's that's mm-hmm. why we have the need of having, um, you know, nonprofits and groups for trans people because cisgender people have failed to serve us correctly. Mm-hmm. So in essence, you know, when these things are being created, when these bills are being created, um, trans people are not in the room um, to, you know, uh, add to the conversation. Um, and that's done on purpose. You know, a lot of these politicians have never... And I've navigated our Pittsburgh government, our county government, like uh, our some a lot of our politicians know who I am, um, you know, in our area. And um, but I've navigated it in a way that I've also learned on how these systems are functioning mm-hmm. um, when it comes to trans people. And as long as we are quiet and suppressed and don't shake their table, um, we're invited to the table. But. The moment we shake their table, they're afraid and they pull back, um, you know, from actual accountability um, in order to do something different uh, within the society. So, well, see, uh, uh, there's been so much violence against um, black trans women, uh, particularly in this area. And I wonder if you think that the dysfunction between, let's say, the, you know, the, the, um, white trans is it white trans establishment or mm-hmm. um lgbt white lgbt establishment and plus the foundations has contributed to this in some way by um not concentrating on the big problem which was violence against you know your community in particular you know your slice yeah. of the community well the issue is as long as we are marginalized they stay in business Um, so that has been, um, another issue that we're facing, you know, in these situations. I talk about this a lot. Like when I first started, when I founded Sisters, I literally looked up what a nonprofit is in a a book dictionary, not even like, I didn't Google it. (laughs) I looked in a book dictionary and, and, and read what a nonprofit was. And what I got out of that is you start something, you address an issue within community um, to a point you are no longer needed. Hmm. And um, that's what I understood it to be. And to have spaces that have been um, typically white, queer, uh, and trans, um, you know, folks who have been benefiting off of our marginalization. And I'll say since I was a kid, because that was a generation I cut, I came from, and it's still going on. Um, you know, we serve majority of, if not all, you know, trans folks, they come through our organization. But um, just seeing those spaces that have historically had access to funding and resources and have not shifted um, the marginalization of trans um, or Black trans folks in Pittsburgh is a problem, especially as we see them getting richer and having larger um, salaries. These were things I weren't paying attention to back in the day. But now I get to see these people at these organizations, they're having six-figure salaries, um, you know, and they're not being um, equitable or equitably uh, resourceful to the community that really needs it. Yeah. 
honestly, we could sit and talk with Sior about these issues all day. Um, Sior, as we wrap up, there's real tangible things happening in our community coming up at the University of Pittsburgh. There's going to be um, transphobic speakers. Um, and there's, of course, protests uh, to, to sort of fight that back happening Friday evening as well as Monday. Um, are you involved with any of these rallies? And what do you think about the fact that the University of Pittsburgh is hosting um, these people to, to debate the existence of yeah. transgender people? Yeah. So firstly, um, I'll start with Pitt. I think it's egregious that, you know, Pitt University would allow something like this um, to happen within a community um, that is already disenfranchised and still in a space of learning trans about trans issues. Um, you know, we've mm. done a lot of work to advocate for our trans communities over the years, over the hell, 15 years I've been doing this work. And um, to see, and I've worked with Pitt. I've spoken at Pitt before, um, you know, to students, uh, you know, and uh, to see them go backwards um, just to have a fight between this cisgender male and this trans woman, which is a whole other subject. She should be ashamed of herself. Um, but to have this um, this debate and call it freedom of speech when it can actually tarnish the lives of the students that are very well walking on that campus. Um, so yeah, that, that's horrible. Um, we are, um, I, I have heard about some protests going on, um, around the city. Uh, but when we first heard about this, um, what was going on at Pitt, we had, we were the first to announce that we were hosting an event on Trans Day of Visibility, um, to center the uh, needs and support of our Pitt students, as well as being visible as trans people, but not a better day um, to be loud and proud and, and talk about this legislation, talk about Michael Knowles, uh, talk about the representation that we need at Pitt University. And the most important thing, centering the voices of our trans youth. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's not, it's often not discussed on, I'm becoming an old head <laughs> in our community. Uh, at 34 too. At 34. Give it up. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but, but I am. And um, I'm in a space now where we can um, not only uh, financially support our trans youth, but we can also be a backing, a force to be reckoned with because we have been doing so much work, mm -hmm. um, you know, in Pittsburgh to support our youth uh, holistically, not just the pretend support where a lot of us uh, adults show up in youth spaces and take it over and mm -hmm. tell them what to do. And um, that's not how you do it. You let these kids do what they need to do and we should be there to catch them if they fall. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a part of my values, um, you know, in this work is making sure that we are building them up. So um, that'll be a day where, um, um, you know, we're going to do just that. That sounds amazing. For right. people that want to learn more about you and your work, how can they support Sisters PGH? Yeah, they can visit our website, um, www.sisterspgh.org. Um, it has all the things that you would need to be able to connect with us. Uh, we also welcome our trans community to our community center here where I'm at now um, to, uh, you know, share space with other trans folks when we're open from 10 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. Um, we have several programs, um, you know, for trans folks, uh, as well as our transitional housing space. Um, Project T for uh, any trans people of color who is experiencing homelessness, houselessness in Pittsburgh and Allegheny County. 
uh, Project T is the place to be. So, um, yes. Sounds like good work. Yes, it definitely does. Thank you so much, Sior, for joining us. Thank you. Stay tuned for Final Thoughts. You're listening to In Other News. Thanks for tuning in. All right, we are back with Final Thoughts. Thank you again to Siora for such an incredible conversation. Um, But now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your column, Tony. And you've had some interesting people that you've been chatting with and and uh researching can you talk a little bit about what's going on what you got cooking absolutely uh, monday's column will uh, feature uh, a profile of latoya uh, ruby frazier mm. a name that's familiar to many people uh here in pittsburgh and especially braddock where she was born and raised um she was the 2015 MacArthur Genius Award recipient. Wow. Uh, and I believe she was actually the first person from this area to receive a MacArthur grant. Uh, she started the ball rolling for so many other people uh, who followed her who are from this area. Um, she also won this um, in, in um, last year. She won the Carnegie International Prize, which is uh, the top prize mm-hmm. um, that's been given to artists uh, since the late 1890s. Wow. Uh, so she is uh, sharing that award with, uh, oh, a, a, a couple um, uh, anonymous folks like uh, Pablo Picasso and <laughs> Matisse and de Kooning. Who? Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Like, nobody's. <laughs> Just whatever. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite an honor. And uh, folks who know, who know LaToya know that she is all about telling the story of Braddock, mm. you know, using her herself and her family uh, to write about the intersection of pollution and the environment and racism and health disparities. Uh, she's been recognized with uh, many, many awards uh, for her work. And, but she, this is the show she has at the Carnegie International right now. It's the first time She's ever been, uh, you know, invited to exhibit in Pittsburgh, which is astonishing. Really? Because she has a one-woman show. I didn't know that. Coming up at the Museum mm-hmm. of Modern Art in Manhattan, in New York. But she's only just now getting invitations um, to uh, to be here in uh, Pittsburgh to exhibit in Pittsburgh. And she's given a lecture on Monday night at Carnegie Mellon. But the story I wrote is going to be wide-ranging. It's going to deal with um, some of her thoughts about uh, her work and her responsibility to be socially responsible mm-hmm. uh, before aesthetically pleasing. Mm. You know, uh, she just happens to be aesthetically pleasing uh, with her work because she does not leave the people of Braddock out of her work. They are very much a part of her work. Does so she talk a lot about environmental justice in her work? That is her primary mm-hmm. uh, thing. You know, she is someone who is who has suffered from lupus mm. herself, she and her mom, mm. and uh, it, it has had a, a very a big effect on her. And she got the prize um, for a work of art that deals with uh, community healthcare workers in Baltimore. And it is not in the least bit didactic or, mm-hmm. you know, social realism in the usual uh, sense of the word. It is really beautiful and confrontational mm. and, um, it is really having an effect. So, um, so read the article 
on Monday and, um, you know, see what uh, Latoya Ruby Fraser is up to. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And speaking of confrontational. Um, you know, we are going to talk a little bit about an article that came out in the Pittsburgh City Paper that really dovetails off of this conversation around uh, advocates tout air monitoring investments as a vital step in the region's greener future. We saw, uh, you know, uh, politicians like Summer Lee really being a big proponents of this. And of the $53 million from an, the EPA to local environmental organizations, $2 million almost was awarded to projects in Western PA because advocates are saying that regulating agencies like the Allegheny Health Department and the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Projection often are lacking uh, the resources to effectively monitor and regulate the range of industrial polluters spanning Western PA. And wow. it, it really makes me think of this quote I heard a while back where um, it said, you know, there is no safe amount mm. of air pollution because I think growing up in Western PA, you know, my grandmother used to tell me when she'd ride the streetcars, Three's Liberty, she'd wear a blouse on the streetcar and then she'd have to change the blouse to go to work because by the time she got off the streetcar, it was black right. from all the soot. And so your mind goes, well, it looks clean out there. So <laughs> it, we've made great strides, which we have to a point, right. but there's a lot of things that are still going on under the surface. Right. I mean, just because the sky is blue doesn't mean that there's no particulate matter. Mm -hmm. I mean, and right now, um, the, the region still has uh, unconscionably high rates of, of asthma for yep. children uh, and for young people. And it, 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 it really is not clean air in mm -hmm. any classical definition of clean. And it's something we're all in denial about in yes. this region. And we really do have to attend to it mm -hmm. um, because, you know, some of us, like myself, I have grandchildren and I, I don't want them, you know, to develop asthma just uh, because they happen to live here. Absolutely. So if you get a chance, you can check out that article in the Pittsburgh City Paper. We're also going to put links uh, below this show's uh, video so that you can learn more about organizations that are fighting for clean air and clean water here in Pennsylvania, because we are all breathing the same air. We're drinking the water. This is not a partisan issue. This is a people issue. So right. until next week, we hope that you will take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye. In Other News is a presentation of Next Pittsburgh and is proudly produced by us along with our amazing team, Emma Honcharski and Margie Ruttenberg. Our editor is Sorgatron Media and original music by Jack Swing. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please like and share this episode and rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps us grow. And if you're listening on the Next Pittsburgh website, take a minute to take a look around to learn more about all the cool stuff happening in our hometown.